Dr. Selena Bartlett, thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. For those of you, for those people listening who don't know who you are, can you explain a little bit about your background and kind of how you've arrived to where you are in your career? Yeah, well, I'm a professor of neuroscience and I'm quite proud to be here to and say that about myself because it's not what I ever predicted I would become. But my journey into understanding the brain started because my sister had a mental illness and I didn't like how she was treated. In fact, she's not alive anymore and her mental illness did kill her in the end. And um, it kind of happened in 1989 in Brisbane and I was a pharmacist at the time and she was in a straitjacket and having an overdose of haloperidol. Mm. And it became very clear to me then that we didn't understand how the brain worked. So I've been on a journey ever since. I stopped being a pharmacist. I went back and became a neuroscientist. I didn't intend to. It's just that I thought I needed to understand how the brain worked. And if only I understood how the brain worked a little bit more then I could help my sister. And what I've come to learn after now 25 years of travelling the world and being trained in neurobiology and uh, I did apply my pharmacist hat and then understanding the power of the latest advances in neuroscience, genomics and neuroplasticity now, mm. we have a chance to make a difference. I didn't think that 10 years ago. I was almost about to give up thinking, oh my God, there's no way... If I keep doing what I'm doing, probing the brain further and further, trying to develop and optimise that medication down to its bits, mm. it helps, but it definitely is not going to change mental health or mental illness to health. Mm. But what I came across in San Francisco when I was a director of developing medications was neuroplasticity. Mm. And that's the massive capacity and untapped potential a brain actually has for change mm. and growth. And it's actually the brain is so much stronger than we realise, but we don't give it that opportunity to grow. And a lot of the things we do are actually counterproductive to that growth. And so that's what my lab does now. Uh, and I did it for myself. Mm. Um, I was very – I end up with depression. I was very overweight when I was running my research lab on addiction in, in America and raising a family. Yeah. You know, it was very hard. Um, but then when I discovered this power and got to really understand the underlying causes of addiction, which is millions of years of evolution, multiple generations of stress and trauma that lead to depression, anxiety, depression, and addiction – is when I came to realise I was studying the wrong thing. And so I've re-geared my lab to understanding the role of how stress over generations has wired the brain to lead the brain to do these things. Mm. And not about the person. Um, I love people and humans, um, but this is about the brain. And we can actually separate people from the brain. Mm. And we need to now, what I've learned is we need to change the conversation, but not... But the key is here and where I've had to kind of step back a little bit and as you know I'm writing a new book called Brain Health Becomes Everyone's Business mm. is what I mean by that is let's not stigmatise that now. Mm. So I want to like you don't stigmatise yoga against yeah. people. Yep. So let's not now stigmatise people's brain against them. Mm. And so mental health unfortunately for all its beauty to try and turn something illness into something health and well-being has stigmatised. So what I mean by that is people sweep it under the carpet. 
Do you still think people are sweeping in yes, under the carpet? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Not anything like it was 30 years ago, thank, mm. thank goodness. Mm. And that's in Australia wonderful compared to America. It's still more so under the carpet. And that's because of the hard work of Black Dog Institute Beyond Blue and, uh, and uh, the way we're speaking about it from places of government like trying to drive these messages around well-being to the public. Mm. But, but when you get down to tin tax, mm. tell me someone that's going to admit to their depression just like that. Yeah. You just don't because you're afraid of the repercussions and how people will still view you. And that's and depression, honestly, is the best one. Yes. You tell me someone that's going to be okay if you said, oh, I've got bipolar. Mm. When bipolar is just similar to depression, it's just a different manifestation of mm. the behaviour. So what I want – and this is not about even la- – I'm just over labels and I'm into demonstrating to people the power of the brain – and the power of us to be able to become the best versions of ourselves once we understand how it works. So where we've kind of gone a little bit astray is uh, in the, because we've been so focused on trying to understand the molecular biology, the neurobiology, the disease itself, we've kind of lost sight of the forest. And I want to step back and give people a view of the forest before we get too much into the trees and down into the roots. And I was, mm. to be honest, I was down not in the roots. I was actually in the parts of the roots <laughs> that are taking up the nutrients of the tree mm. in terms of brain. That's where I got to. Mm. Um, so we need to step back now and stop labelling things. We've done enough labels and we've got labels for everything and the labels are getting more and more narrow and I understand why because we need to get a recognition and an understanding that people have something happening. Mm. But we have to now go back and say, okay, there's an underlying cause here, let's address the cause. So you're more about addressing the cause yes, but rather than labelling something. But No, but I'm more interested in actually also there's some fundamental brain science facts mm. that are missing across all interventions. Okay, what's that? So the, the fact of how the brain's been wired mm. over many, many generations, you know how we were talking about the amygdala mm. and the prefrontal cortex. So today in my presentation I'll be describing that. Mm. We, kn- we know where addiction comes from. Unless we address how that multiple generations of stress and trauma have wired that bottom part of the brain, which is what we like to call subconscious or unconscious, it's there for a reason, mm. Unless we address that first and then also affect the impact on the prefrontal cortex, which is the human part of the brain, if we don't address that as a commonality in the science language, like we're speaking the same language, Mm. then nothing's going to change. Because what I've discovered being out in the general public since I've worked out that neuroplasticity is probably the best next approach we have on top as an add-on to what people are doing, we have to speak the same language. And that's missing. Mm. So at the moment, people have all their own languages for the brain. Mm. And that's just because of where we're up to in terms of evolution. Because we've never had the brain imaging or the science to back up these facts Mm. about how the brain works. And so I think what I've discovered with people that are suffering or not even happy, when they see that it's not them, it's their brain, Mm. it has a big impact and, and when everyone sees the commonality in that brain, mm. it gives then compassion to the people 
yes. see that everyone has more or less the same trauma, the yeah. same stress, the same generations, but no one's been taught that they can control it, mm. that they can change it, that they're not stuck with it, you know, and that's the power of neuroplasticity. That's mm. the power of having that common language. And so what's happened in the brain space or the mental health space is that everyone has a specific name they like to call it, whether it's brains. I don't want to make – I don't want to name it, but everyone has a certain thing they've done mm. and then they want to then – or they've had a lived experience and something worked for them and then they think that will work. For everybody. <laughs> oh, which is natural and so mm. do I, right, at some level. Uh, and I, there's nothing wrong with it if it's helping people – but we we have an upswing in mental health and illness. Mm. So if we're helping, why are we why are we having an escalating crisis? Why do you think we are having an escalating? Because crisis? I think that there's three things at play. Well, COVID let's obviously <laughs> COVID has accelerated it and catalyzed it, but it was already happening. Mm. COVID definitely has accelerated, but COVID provides the window to see why. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's because we've all been impacted. Mm. So a paper that was just published um, in, uh, recently in PLOS demonstrated an Australian survey demonstrating that between March and April through the first lockdowns, there's a 55 to 72% increase in mental health presentation wow. with or without a previous mental health diagnosis. Wow. And that's not – are you surprised? No. No. Like I've, in, I've felt COVID mm. and I'm and I'm been working on – neuroplasticity and applying it to my life for seven years mm. and so I knew going into COVID I had to draw on a lot of other resources to double down yes. on the impact that COVID's going to have on my brain totally. and what I mean by that is the way the news tell me what news is not COVID for the first six months <laughs> cases death rates hospitalizations ICUs from, yep. a, from a brain perspective forget about the human the brain's only ever going to be latching on to the fear mm. around that. So, the, so you're activating the fear centre of your brain. And so everyone's fear centre is quite different. So someone that's come from multiple generations of high-stress trauma can process that fear at a much greater rate than someone that came from a loving home, for example. Right. That's just a brain neuroscience understanding. Mm. So that plus all the plans on hold... So all the normal ways that we would handle our normal everyday stress, like arranging a Friday night drink, mm. going to a birthday party, a wedding, a funeral. Planning yeah, a holiday. Funeral, but planning the – and these are first world Western problems. I do understand course, that. Yeah. And I said that to my daughter yesterday, <laughs> that we are very privileged. But at the same time, that's still without brain training, that's going to have a massive impact and that's contributing to that acceleration and this acceleration has been going on for some time mm. and that's let's talk about why that was happening I was right? going to say why is technology there... yes right there's no doubt that there's a there's a, there's a definite correlation between the younger age of presentation of mental health problems and the acceleration of technology is that technology <laughs> specifically or is it like social media I think it's all of it okay yes social media to the younger generation but but technology to the older generation mm. because of the and I was just having this conversation earlier today the upswing of the dehumanization of the workforce because of the acceleration of technology and it's not meant to be intentional mm. but as humans we we could do something about this but we tend not to mm. and that's because of now the expectations around the parents mm. 
and the workplace of how you communicate and the speed at which you do need to do work and the amount constantly of constantly accessible the, the amount of output um, and you as a swimmer and everything you understand this the KPIs or mm. what you're meant to achieve you do this oh well thank you now you can do that yes, can't you exactly you understand that well this is happening across the workforce mm. so that has a big impact on on um, older generations which are then trying to parent Mm. They're younger children, but then they're also looking after the older generation. Mm. It's called the sandwich generation. But anyway, so that that's one aspect of technology. And that emailing system is being picked up from the minute people wake up in the morning. So that's making the society more stressed, even though it looks like we've got all more advantages mm. materially, which we do. But fundamentally, inside people, they're more stressed out than they've ever been because we've lost the old... And I'm not into retro because I really believe in the power of technology but I also believe in the power of humans to overcome mm. this addiction that we've had or being succumbed to um, and it's not our fault we just got hacked mm. and you can watch a film called The Social Dilemma. Yes I've watched that and you, so good. And it's so true isn't it and I'm one of them and I've been I was impacted but I had to I have to be very aware to prioritise what's the most important things in my life and mm. not succumb to it. And, mm. th and that's against all the pressures. So there's that. And then so on younger children, we have the first kids. Um, uh, I've worked with the eating disorders facility. We're opening – well, they were opening the first um, farm stay residential for eating disorders on the Sunshine Coast. And they told me that they had the first – during COVID – in, increase in eating disorders, of course, mm. right? So there's an increase in most things. Mm. And they were telling me that they had a six-year-old present. Wow. The youngest ever. That's it, unbelievable. I have a five-year-old daughter that just seems So this where this is where we awful. get to, to the technology answer. Mm. So the social media for younger generations about body image and... So even at six, they're sort of taking on that information. Absolutely. Because, because the kids are getting access to tech. Like I was sitting with a family where they had an 18-month-old that could navigate YouTube better than I could. Wow. Which on one level you kind of go, that's impressive because they've obviously learnt that. They, but they, they shouldn't be. But they shouldn't have that access, obviously. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, and I did a Radio National interview yesterday and we were talking about middle years. Mm. And this is just – and it's like, what do we do? So parents feel helpless to – well, we don't want them to be disconnected from their peers. Mm. You know, I'm a parent. I've been through this. And I was lucky. I, My daughter got to Snapchat. My son got Facebook at 13 because I'm older than most. Mm. But these younger parents that are growing up with the technology mm. and now they just think of it as a normal part of life. They're not thinking that it's impacting the brain. Mm. Why would you? But also it's it's a – uh, almost a parenting tool. I know I have three young daughters yes. and to try and get anything done in their house, like folding or just, you know, absolutely life continuing things, um, you kind of have to distract them. I know. And, and it's really difficult when they're at you all the time going, I'm bored, I'm I bored. Know. And I'm they have that access to the TVs or the iPads and things like that. I'm but, with you. Yeah. I was there and I, I feel your pain. Mm. But once upon a time, we just threw them in the backyard yes. and said, go and play in the sandpit and yep. I'll, be, I'll see you later. So why don't we do that anymore? Because uh, we not we got addicted to the technology. and So we ourselves have become addicted. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. And it's getting worse. And that's why 
And it's not just about technology, but we got to that conversation because you were asking me why is there this increase. Mm. So there's a few things at play. That's just one thing. Mm. And the disconnection from parents to children is much greater now. Mm. And the and the so then we can go to the family. So there's been a much much more disintegration of family, and 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 so people have become more individual yes. too. So we've lost the village, even mm. though we have it better in Australia and New Zealand than say, for instance, America, which is where I spend a lot of my research career and mm. raising my own family. Yeah. So I've seen everything. Mm. Um, so, I mean, these are societal pressures. But what I want to talk about on this podcast, and I don't know who's listening, but the main thing is what do you do, mm. right? Exactly. And the, the one thing you can do, and just to let you know, I was just having a really deep conversation about with this with my own 19-year-old daughter who grew up in America, so she's seen things is that the one thing that we have control over is what we do inside for ourselves Mm. no matter what's happening around you whether it's all these pressures we just identified whether it's uncertainties about whether you can travel to see your family overseas or um, make plans Mm. you can control what you do every day Mm. for your brain health Mm. and that has the longest most impactful part of your life because it actually helps your body Mm. and also helps you be a less stressed out, more present parent. Mm. So the one thing we know, and this is where the brain science really matters, um, is that they they have this thing that um, they call serve and return as a strategy in terms of how how do you buffer all this toxic stress impact on your brain that you've inherited mostly? Because mm. we're all born like this, by the way. Yeah. We're all born stressed out yeah. at some level, like at, at a brain level from a brain perspective. And so what do you do then? Well, you have to become the boss of your brain. Mm. And we have to now teach people how to do that. Mm. And that piece is missing in cross-society like we're not we're educated about mindfulness or we're educated about the anatomy of the brain mm. but neuroscience is an action word it's a verb mm. it's not a this is all the bits of the brain no this is like this is what the brain is and it's a dynamic organ and without training it the brain wins yeah. and it's not about you it's about the brain now do you think do you, do you attach yourself to your bicep in your arm no. You don't identify as I am, <laughs> I am my, my bicep. <laughs> I am my bicep and I have like a really good bicep so I'm better than you kind of thing. So it's it, like it's just it's just the thinking and that's why the conversation we're having today is so important. We've got to start changing the conversation to make it this healthy brain health and fitness conversation mm. and not all about the negative aspects of the brain because, yes, we all have something. We're mm. all on a spectrum everyone has something yes and we're addicted to something because that's the brain's way of handling millions of years of evolutionary stress Mm. that's what i find very interesting if i just break in there is you know you talk about you know being born this way basically so i kind of get the sense of nature versus nurture um in in that respect so how is it like, because I, I imagine some people hearing that will go just go, oh, well, I'm born this way, I can't change. So therefore, yeah. know, what am I going to do about it? Yeah, but that's not true, right? So born with your, what we call hardware, mm. which is your genetic blueprint. And then you have your software, which adjusts the hardware, mm. which is the environment that you grow up in. Mm. The environment can be changed. Like right now, I can smile at you. Mm. I just changed your brain. Yes. 
Exactly. It was a minute little thing and it probably will go back. But if I keep smiling at you, I keep hugging you, I keep saying, I see you, Mm. that will have a long-term impact to buffer what you were born with. Yes, okay. But if you don't know that, you'll just keep going and think like that. Right. So the change that's got to happen is that change, Mm. is the fundamental knowledge that we now have that the brain is incredibly plastic. Mm. We know between the ages of zero and three and 10 and 14, up until the ages of 25, it's really plastic. So you can drive in and you have to consciously drive in positive over negative because the brain is fundamentally wired that way to keep you alive. Mm. We know that. So... But even my age, right, I only made these changes in myself and my body at 47. Right. And I am fitter now than I've ever been in my life. It's awesome. And also I was just reflecting on this and it's not to boast. It's just that I only started applying neuroplasticity through this knowledge and I wish I had it younger. I just didn't. But I had to go through everything I learned about the brain over 30 years of developing drugs, of doing neurobiology. I still do that in my lab. I do run a neuroplasticity neuroscience lab at QUT Very, and we do great fundamental research but now it's in that space of wow how can we find that potential to actually tap into it in another way Mm. so stop I want I'm stopping to study the pathology because I got that wrong Mm. when someone's presenting with a mental health problem it's like treating someone that's had five heart attacks Mm. so we need to change the way we're studying it we need to change the way we're presenting it and we need to change the conversation And people, I understand it's hard to drive change. I'm not trying to change people. I'm just trying to educate. Mm. It's like when we understood about DNA, Mm. right? We once before DNA was discovered, and how it's and its 3D structure. Mm. The fact that we now know you're born with a genetic blueprint. Back in the day, we didn't know that. Yeah. Well, before we invented aeroplanes, we were on bicycles and we were putting flaps on bicycles. <laughs> yeah. The brain's exactly in that spot right now. And there's been many people over decades trying to change the conversation. But it's, it's hard because we've been so Im- the brain is so embedded to our, who we are mm. that people don't like to think that you can separate it to an organ. You know what I mean? At some level. Not only, but at some level. And I find in our society as well is that there's so much instant gratification and people want instant results. You know, they're on a diet for a couple of days. They want to see five kilos lost or, you know. I did that too. Yeah, yeah. 15 years. I think we've all done that on some level, on some spectrum, as as you've mentioned. How do you get people to commit to some sort of brain training um, to improve that in the long term rather than sort of getting, you know, annoyed and, and giving up on whatever that might yeah. be. So what, one thing that I've discovered uh, and we're, we're trying to start a research centre based on this is bringing neuroscience into, into obesity. Mm. And what I mean by that is that the body is a reflection of the brain. Mm. And so the way that you can tap into this is the waistline so instead of measuring your weight we can actually measure someone's waistline and as they get the stress under control first then their waistline shrinks right so it's weighing is difficult because it takes time but waste so i can give you lots of examples of this because it's not about the food and the exercise it's about managing stress right that has the biggest impact yeah 
Right. Well, because we're born that way. Mm. And so the way the brain, the brain doesn't like it because none of us are training our brain, right? Mm. Very few people are training their brain. That's going to change. But because of that, we've never taught people that. And so therefore the brain, the way the, way the brain handles that, because it doesn't want to kill itself, the brain's a machine and it's amazing and it's, it just knows what it's up to. Mm. It drives you to, when you're stressed, to eat chocolate in the afternoon or to have a glass of wine by the end of the day of a very stressful day. Like, you'd be having an amazingly stressful day. If you've got three kids yes. <laughs> and a job and you're trying to keep the food on the table. Like, I've mm. been in your shoes and mm. it is stressful and I got incredibly overweight and unhealthy during mm. that time in my life because I didn't know I should be training my brain. Yes. I was just letting everything happen and I was studying the brain. Yeah. And particularly addiction. So I'm very ashamed of myself, but I but that's part of life, you know. You have to learn, and I'm a slow learner. When you know more, you do. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so what I discovered, and unbelievable, but I study alcohol addiction for a long time, and I developed drugs for that, and I got famous for that in America, and then I discovered neuroplasticity. But on my way back to Australia, we discovered sugar changes the brain in exactly the same way that alcohol does. Right. But so sugar is more than its calories. So sugar changes, makes the brain more stressed, mm. but it also activates the brain and it makes you want to eat more on your next meal. Right. So we think of it, cal- oh, it's only 100 calories. What's that going to do? Mm. It's hidden. So it, it activates the hypothalamus, suppresses appetite, hormones, ghrelin and leptin, which makes you never feel full when you eat. Right. And the way it's stored in the body, that excess energy through fructose, and sugar's embedded in all foods now, by the way. Mm. It's not just the chocolate in the vending machine. Mm. The brain drives you to eat it because it gives you a dopamine hit to counterbalance the stress. Mm. And anyone can think of this. Kids get home from school, they're ratty, had a hard day, they want to, the easiest thing is to give them a big, and you're trying to be healthy, (laughs) chocolate, but you're trying to make them healthy, so you might go to quench. Yeah. Or... (coughs) <coughs> a juice place, whatever you you do. I did all of this, by the way. Mm. I'm a terrible parent, so don't listen to me. <laughs> I I'm think just, we all feel that way. I'm a pro- I'm a professor, you know. So I, you know, what do they say about them? But but I've learned this, and then so what I did for my own life um, once I learned that in the lab was I started. I took out sugar because sugar was my thing too. For some people, it's high fat food, cheese, crackers, wine, and you know I can think of all the times I'm leaving my lab pick up the kids, I'm always the last one to get them. This is Mm. in San Francisco. Get home, open the bottle of wine, have Mm. a glass, cook dinner and like, you know, and I could remember thinking about doing that on my way home, Mm. you know, to count it. It's a stress mechanism. It's a way of count. And I didn't know that when I was doing it. Um, Anyway, so when I got back to Australia and I was trying to lose weight and I started running to, to do a marathon and... I wasn't losing waist, weight around my waistline because mm. I'd had children and, and I was in my 40s by this stage. Right. And I'm like, this is really annoying. Mm. And I just put it down to my age and having children. So, but then I discovered sugar as addictive as alcohol and nicotine. I discovered, then I started to become aware, oh my goodness, I went and looked at how much sugar I was in, eating. And I'm like, I'm eating a huge amount of sugar. That's equivalent. That 100 calories is actually 1,000 calories to my body right and it's actually the reason why I couldn't lose weight so not weight I'm talking about why I was hanging on to it's because I was it was my life Mm. I cut out sugar and now I got my appetite back right so I'd eat and then I'd feel full again 
I got my waistline back and I'm 55 and I've had everything. So I, like if you, I have to do what I'm studying, mm. otherwise you don't believe it. Yeah, of course. And then so I do run every day and things like that. But I'm just saying that, that this is a way in for people because people really still care a lot about image mm. over because you can't see the brain. Mm. And so it's very hard for people to see the, any value in doing that. Yes. Firstly, this they is want the question. tangible outcomes. Yes, and this is the first one because as you start to mitigate this stress through daily training, mm. starting with understanding it's just your brain mm. and where it's come from and until you get tackle that first, you're always going to be seesawing on diets. They mm. don't work. We know that. In fact, we've got studies to demonstrate that people will regain weight or, or put weight back on after one year. Yeah. It's and just sometimes even more. Even more and, and, that, and people make a huge amount of money out of this. Yeah. And, um, and you do – because you get positively reinforced for the f- – and I did this too mm. um, in the beginning for the first 12 weeks because yeah, uh, you do lose weight on a very strict diet, right? And so you get positively reinforced. People go, oh, you're looking great. What are you doing? Mm. And then that wears off yeah. because then you still – you have to go back to your normal environment exactly. at some point. Or so, and, and you have kids and – it's, you know, it's tricky because it's driven by stress. Mm. So when we get on top of the stress first, the weight is secondary because you – and then when you become aware of the stress driving your, what you're starting to eat, if you get on the stress, then you don't, you're not being driven to the vending machine. Mm. Um, you've got new strategies in place. Yes. You understand that it's your brain and it's making you do it. Mm. You know, it's this education piece that I think is, is for me particularly was fundamental to the changes I made in my life and how we help other people too. And I know that sounds simple, but I think it really matters, mm. you know, and we, it really matters a lot because children now are presenting with diabetes, yeah, type 2 diabetes and um, heart disease and they're wow. under 20 and their weight the predictions in Australia are that 75% of Australians are going to be overweight or obese by 2025. Wow. And COVID's amplified this of because course. of our stress. Yeah. It's another demonstration of what well, I'm saying. Everyone's talking about COVID weight <laughs> that they put on during and lockdown. COVID brain, COVID, COVID fog. Mm. It's because of the stress. And mm. so that's why like, COVID's been horrible. But from a brain perspective, it's a direct demonstration at a global level. Yeah. Of one, it's all about stress. Two, it drives you to do things and these are the outcomes it shows in your body. Mm. And so, therefore, the first way in, in my opinion, to make these conversations is to let's introduce neuroscience and brain health conversations and let's help people get brain fit. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but um, what is the one thing that you think people should do to look after their brain health? Like, is it doing the brain training? How do people yep. do brain training? Are there sort of resources and things that you can point people to to start yeah. down that journey and that Absolutely. path? And that's what I've been doing for the mm. last seven years. It's not just simply like do brain training. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I thought it would be, and which is why I wrote that first book called Miggy Matters. Miggy being the amygdala, which holds all the stress, goes into your body. If you train, it's the problem, mm. but it's also the solution. Mm. So if we treat Miggy like a muscle and train it, then we might also lose weight. Yep. Not, it's not just about that. And I'm, I'm not centred on that. It's, it's about helping people see it. <coughs> Sorry. No, you're right. But I think that, but that's a really interesting point because I think people were so centered on image <laughs> in our society at this point. But, uh, you know, 
if you're getting your brain right, then your body will function well and it will function in the way that it's supposed to. Yes, and this is what I love because this is not just – this is just the beginning. Mm. It's a, it, and what happens as you – it's a life skill mm. and you have – because ageing stressful. Stress isn't going away. No. You know, we've become everything. You know, I can give you a million things about what's driving this. But, 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 but when we st- strengthen the brain and we learn that we have the power to do that mm. by showing people these strategies, there's lots of strategies that people can use – and that's why I wrote these books and I have a podcast too called Thriving Minds and I have a book called Smashing Mindset and I'm writing another book because I want to reach general public. I try and make it really simple but it's that fundamental power I want to give to people. I want to give the power, the brain, back to the people. Mm. The, people the brain got taken away and it's not on purpose. It's just that we didn't understand very much and so people think they can't, there's nothing they can do. Mm. What is that barrier? What, what is that challenge that people can't sort of break They're, through to understand that they are in control of their brain? Because they've never been shown. Right. So, and, 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 and it's no one's fault. It's, we're still expanding all our understandings and this has been a, once upon a time, 2,000 years ago, or actually 7,000 years ago, they drilled holes in people's he- head to mm. treat mental illness. And then at some points we thought the heart was the centre. But now we have brain imaging technology where we can take the brain out and show people all of this information Mm. because you can see when you're training your arm, Mm. oh, look, I'm getting – something's happening here. But what can I show you that something's happening in your brain? And the only way I can really do that in an effective way outside imaging your brain, which I think we'll be able to do and there's some – feedback mechanisms that are happening for that is in your body. Mm. And so as you do this and you start to get on top of stress and you start to feel better and it starts to reflect in your body, and I know it's not overnight, but it can be a little bit overnight. Yes. Because as you're less stressed, your kids behave differently. Yes. And you, every parent cares a lot about their children. And because of mirror neurons, everything around you how you're mitigating stress is a circle of influence of everyone around you. Mm. And so as you get on top of it, they do mm. too. And they're going, what happened to mum? What yeah. happened to dad? <laughs> She's yelling a lot less. <laughs> For example, you know, and, and, I, and I'm saying it's a journey because I, it's, 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 I'm seven years in. Mm. So I'm not saying this is an overnight thing, but it definitely you can do small things overnight. And once I understood that power, I re-changed my whole life. Mm. And it, my life is a completely different beast mm. to the life bef- before I came to, back to Australia. Um, I am everything I am now not everything that I used to be um, because I wanted to if – I, I, if I'm going to do this in my lab and I'm going to write about it, I have to do it. And I'm, I'm just a work in progress. Mm. And there's a lot we don't understand. But these fundamental little pieces we do understand now. Mm. And it's not okay for people not to know about it. Mm. And that power needs to be given back. And I think we just – we didn't take it away. We just thought it was rocket science and we didn't have the imaging tools and the genomics technology and, you know, all of these digital technologies. So just as technology can be used and it's not meaning to be used for bad, it just happens, we as humans are incredibly intelligent. So we can take that technology 
and drive it for good. And each of us have the have a responsibility once you have good knowledge, because I could take my knowledge and I can turn it to bad, and I know people that are. Um, but I think we have to, at, at this point in our life and society and governments, we have to help people turn and join together now and come back together and stop driving the individuation. Mm. Because it's not helping, mm. is it? When we're, we're doing silly things. We're, it's, for example, like I, I don't know if anyone's watched the David Attenborough film about life, his witness statement of 92 years of filming on the planet and, it, and what we're doing. And when I came to the end of that film, I'm like, who cares about brain health? Yeah. What does that matter when our world is imploding? <laughs> but I figured that it does matter because we can drive this message faster if people are not acting on their animal brain. Because mm. at the moment our foraging instincts and the individuation mean that we're trying to accumulate and hold when we need to be – we don't need anything what we think we need and we need to be sharing. Mm. And so that way maybe we can understand that we're part of an ecosystem – and we're just a small part of that ecosystem. Mm. We're not. But surely the brain training and the understanding of neuroplasticity and, and how we can improve ourselves will contribute to good decisions being made by people rather exactly. than, you know, feeling that scarcity yes. sort of concept. It's more of an abundance. Yes. And, you know, we can share and we can all yeah. cohabitate this planet and heal it in a positive way exactly and so the thing that this is so I, I mean as you know we could talk about this for days mm. there's so many things that come from this understanding and training mm. it's not just about how you look mm. what ends up happening is you get on top of so many things you turn that stress reaction into a stress response so what are you doing you're strengthening the prefrontal cortex mm. which is the insular cortex too which is the rational human part of the brain. Mm. And so your decisions are now being driven by, um, not by emotional uh, reactions, but by rational choices, and you become more creative. Mm. So we could together synergize uh, in a room, say we've got a room full of people, like this, let's just go futuristic, because mm. I am a bit of a dreamer, as you can probably tell. Love it. <laughs> is Imagine now a room full of people and and I actually do have an opportunity to do this next year, which I'm very excited about, from preschool all the way to high school wow. and all the teachers and parents in a whole uh, community. Brilliant. Yeah. So let's start the process. Like let's not stop talking about it and try and actually – Action it. Action it more than mm. I have been yes. trying to. <laughs> You've done a fair bit. So. Yeah, I've been doing a bit but not enough um, and and – we need it at the community level. Mm. So as you said to me, so what do we do, Selena? How yes, do we, I was just going to say, how, uh, how yeah. do we do it? How so, do people action it in their own lives? So it starts with the adults and not with the kids. Mm. We always say, well, well, the kids have got to do this, the kids have got to do that, the teachers have to do more and they're already doing a lot mm. and they're not paid very much for the most important job that we have on the planet. So it's going to be a four-level approach and starts at the top so whoever's running the organisation, if they're not doing it, it's not going to happen in the organisation. Mm. Everything starts at the top and filters down and then you work from the ground up and then we meet in the middle. So it's like any kind of army or organisation. Um, the leadership matters. Mm. Unless I don't, 
I'm working with a leader that understands the importance and is going to action it in their own life first mm. before they ask a community of people to do it. There's nothing worse, I don't know if you find this too, mm. of someone <laughs> talking about something and saying, now I want you to go off and start a well uh, wheel of well-being or a whole kind of plethora of things to do in the classroom or in your life or in a family home, but they're not doing it. I always found that fascinating. Uh, I was working in, in a role and, you know, they were very much about work-life balance and they said, you know, turn off notifications for your email at 7pm or 6pm or whatever it might have been, but then they're sending emails at 3am at night. And for me, that's obviously... You can't, there's a disconnect there because what they're telling us and what they're doing is different. So it, it, it's hard to sort of take that on board as not the expectation of what they're yeah. wanting. And um, my partner wrote a, wrote a piece um, about something called, for a different topic, called Deeds Not Words. Mm. And so actions speak so much louder than words. So true. And so that's why I said to you about myself, if I'm not actioning, you are not allowed to write, you are not allowed to speak. And and I'm actioning at, as best I can. I still struggle. Of course. Because I have a brain that's a million years old that yeah. came from mushrooms. You're and, human. <laughs> and I also inherited lots of stuff, you know, mm. and obviously because my sister had schizophrenia and passed from it. And now I know why. Mm. And I know why I do what I do and I know why... And this is not shaming because it's not my parents because they inherited exactly. from their parents and their parents inherit and they actually did quite well to with no tools, no understanding. Mm. Um, I got all this opportunity to understand how the brain works and so I feel very lucky and so I feel very like I have to help my children understand what I learned without ramming it down their throats or anything because <laughs> yeah. it's their life. Yeah. But um, so it's a – it's, you know – it's a journey like it, we are where we are right now and there's nothing bad or anything about it. It's just like, well, if you want to know this, it's, it's here for you to know. And, but, but at the same time, we have a responsibility with this knowledge to disseminate it and it's not to say you've got to do this. It's just like we have this knowledge. I've worked with taxpayer-funded grants um, over years and I'm very grateful for all the funding I've received and I believe that's my responsibility to give back mm. for the people that have helped me do what I've done so far to get where I am. So so I don't know how to answer the questions. I'm not here to change people. I think people are beautiful. Mm. I'm here to show people um, the brain is amazingly beautiful. Yeah. And you have and powerful. It's so powerful, and you're all you all have beautiful brains, and where you are right now is really somewhat. It's got really often nothing to, to do with you, and um, and the only thing that that you can do is is what you can take forward and change, mm. because you'll even if you want to go back and work out why. You'll never find out. Yeah. You'll only go back to this lifetime and then maybe your parents. Mm. But you'll actually – so for me, like to explain this in a, in a better way, is like I might have a 5th century um, warrior princess lying inside me because I often feel like – and it's not about past life regression or anything. It's just about the brain. It's how mm. it's wired. And so if you – so you could step back to humans – 
And then I'm only talking about the front part of the brain. So as you'll see in my presentation today, I'm going to take you back to a cat's brain. And they have a, a circuitry in the brain that makes them jump when they see a cucumber because they think <laughs> it's a snake. And it's activated in milliseconds, right? And so we have that circuit which stops us from being eaten by snakes. Mm. But unfortunately in the Western world and our modern world, our emails now are the same as a snake to our brain because mm. we have that circuitry. Now let's step back, let's go back to bacteria, which are the first things to arrive on the planet outside, you know, CHO. When the, when the bacteria are on your body and they, and they attack something, they form this little thing called a biofilm, which is why they're so hard to inhibit, except with antibiotics and other things, right? That the way that ha is happening to cause that film is the signaling apparatus and molecules that we have. Wow. And if you turn a tree upside down or a set of mushrooms that are talking to each other across a field and you turn them upside down and look underneath and look at their systems, their root systems, you can't tell me it doesn't look like a brain. Wow. And when you go inside that molecularly and from a biochemical point of view, they're actually using action potentials, mm. which is what we use in the brain to signal. So our brain is the compilation of all the best things that have happened to drive life so do you want to live in your mushroom brain is what i say <laughs> probably not ideal <laughs> but it's not you know it is what it is yeah because you do what you do until you know something else exactly it's knowledge and so when i go back to that community level starts with the leadership starts with education that starts with teaching people they do have some power and then showing them how they have that power yep. it's all about actions and and not more interventions and assessments and labeling and and channeling people mm. i think i think i'd like to focus a little bit for a while uh, and that's all valuable and will happen and we need more of it to to support people that do need it mm. on the other side the flip side of that we need to show people that power mm. and make everyone see the similarities and mm. not the differences mm. and to what would the world look like in that power? I often think a lot about that when I wake up in the morning. Imagine, I don't know, is that like, – there's always something bad that comes from – there's a side effect of everything. But, you know, I often think about imagining showing people the strength and not the weaknesses that they have and then giving the strategies in place to overcome those millions of years of evolution and how do we go about doing that and – yeah, that's kind of what I do for a living, <laughs> think yeah. about that. Um, but so from your podcast, anyone listening, I just want to let you know that the main thing to understand, and I've been down all the pathways that many people, like we talked mm. about, have been down. And the best thing that I've discovered, because I was on a journey to understand how the brain works to help my sister, which mm. I didn't because I was still developing medications mm. when she killed herself in 2006 from her illness. Yeah. She was on all sorts of... I mean, we could, we could talk about that for hours too. Yeah. Um, I didn't help her, but I could have now uh, with my new knowledge, um, is that you have capacity to um, be the boss of your brain. Mm. And one little trick to start tomorrow or today um, to get on this, to just test it out and experiment with yourself is when you wake up in the morning, I want you to look out the window or a plant or something in your room and just think of three things that you're grateful for mm. and you're going to tell them and not look at your phone 
and try and wake up without an alarm if you can. That might be difficult, but I'm sure it may not be. But the main thing is having that killer morning routine, that first couple of minutes, um, from a brain perspective, what it's doing is it's putting the brain outside itself and looking and you're actually consciously driving in um, yeah, and you're making the brain focus on something that's outside, external. Because as we turn in and let the brain run, it, run its little hardware <laughs> off mm. its software, it just does all sorts of crazy things. And, mm. and, you, and like I don't know if anyone knows this notices this. You might have a thought. Mm. Oh, my God, I've got a deadline today. Yeah, so stressed. I'm not, I'm not going to get that done. Mm. That's the minute you wake up and it's then you're on the phone or you have the alarm and then you're on social media for a second to relieve the stress and, and then you've got the kids screaming and then you've got to – put the lunches in the lunch boxes, get the breakfast on. Immediately I start to go. <gasps> exactly. I was there <laughs> big time. Yeah. But now when I change my morning, I call it my killer morning routine. Mm. And it's just a simple thing for anyone can do and try it. Yeah. Just to get into it. It, 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 we don't need big programs to start. We need experiments. We mm. need people to get curious, yes. ask themselves, oh, my God, that's what I do. Am I now, feeling better with that? Am I noticing a change? Mm. Oh, my God, my kids were calmer when they went to school today. Mm. And it all started just because I thought of three things I'm grateful for and I did it every day. Mm. You can't just do it once. Consistencies. And, but it's hard, though, because of the way the brain's wired over mm. millions of years of habit forming to handle stress. Mm. Um, and I call it cat catastrophic thinking and it's because the way that happens from a neuroscience perspective is one negative thought, like <gasps> yep. deadline – then leads to the next one mm. and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And, the next one and, the, and, and before you know it, your whole life's a catastrophe yes. in your mind. Mm. And then you've got to go and then handle everyone else's catastrophes. Of yeah, because <laughs> we've all got catastrophes <laughs> happening at once. <laughs> and the, normal, the really annoying thing is when you become aware of this and you recognise that it's just an untrained brain and that it's been come in wired like this because it's it's trying to just make you feel safe and it's trying to do this to make you feel safe and that you have control to actually retrain that part first that's why that's why I said Miggy yes <laughs> that's where it's all happening yeah yep and it's subconscious and it's milliseconds and it takes a bit of training mm. and i still have it too mm. um but, but way you are aware of it way less mm. like 100x less yeah. but I'm you know I've got millions of years evolution to go <laughs> as <compare>. well <laughs> <laughs> but when you recognize that it made a big change and my daughter said to me she goes mum it's like you're a little caterpillar and then you opened up mm. and she sees it as other things but I see it as a combination of, of applying these strategies mm. and so that's one aspect is controlling the way you your brain t is taking in the stress it's, it's not it's like starts there first mm. As a simple thing. And then it's starting to become more aware, oh, I'm going to the vending machine because I'm stressed. Mm. It's not that I'm hungry yeah. or, and I am craving that chocolate. Oh, but it's all because of all the things that led up to that. Yes. So what can I do to change that? So that, that little thing you did in the morning and a little bit less means that you may not go to the vending machine. Mm. Okay, so you don't go to the vending machine and now you go for a walk outside at work or somewhere at home. Mm. You walk out the door before you start yelling, for example, mm. because now you're a bit more aware because mm. you know it's coming from your brain, Yeah. right? And then so not going to that vending machine 
not eating that 120 calories, which is actually a thousand calories because now you're sitting at work yes. and then you're going home still stressed. Tiny little things add up to something massive. Mm. And then as you watch your waistline start to come down because now you've got on top of that and I mean, they're simple things, I know, but they're hard to implement. Yes. But isn't it worth it? Because mm. now you're going to be able to drive that to your children and you have the power to do this mm. too. You're not having to sign up to some hugely expensive thing. It is is useful to have a coach maybe for the first three months or four weeks or eight weeks to drive the repetitive nature of these simple things. And I've just noticed a guy who started Tom's Shoes mm. – um, he got bought. He ended up with depression, right. and he's hugely wealthy. Um, amazing podcast. He's he was on this roadway to wealth, and he was interviewing um, the guy that started uh, CNN, and the guy he was going on stage with him, and Ted looked at him and said, "So you're climbing that ladder of success, and you're and you're trying to see what's in the in the um, bucket when you get to the top, mm. in the bag." And um, Ryan said to him, yeah, what's in the, what's in the um, bucket at the top? And he looked at him and said, nothing. Mm. But he still had to climb the ladder himself. So he gets the top, sells or he still owns part of Tom's Shoes. You know, Tom's Shoes, yeah. one for one, he started the whole social capitalism. Yeah. He ends up depressed because wow. he doesn't see anything worthwhile because he's achieved everything. And not only that, he did giving mm. along the way. So he's doing everything that you're meant to do. Yes. And now you're meant to be incredibly happy. Surely. Surely you're incredibly happy with all of those millions of dollars and, you know, doing good for the world. <laughs> That's so, what everyone he, imagines. Yeah, so you end up depressed. Mm. And, and so he talks about that and then he went on a discovery to work out all of these things and you know what he came to? Neuroplasticity, wow. neuroscience and he's now, because he's an entrepreneur, capitalist, really, um, he's now cut, started a program, a 10-month program. It's called Made For. And he's now got 5,000 people doing his program. And what is his program? It's each month he sends someone, not online, but a physical product. Mm. Um, like, for instance, the first 30 days they get a water bottle. Mm. Because, and he teaches them about why hydration helps f- for the brain. Awesome. And how doing it every day for 30 days. And he has little beads on the bottle. Yep. And so you have to move the beads so you get a dopamine hit. Yep. To make people do it for 30 days. Yep. And so those small little changes over 30 days then lead them to the next 30 days and they're paying, I guess, a monthly subscription to be part of this 10-month program and he probably does some coaching in between, I think. Mm. Um, anyway, but I thought that's really interesting, right? So why don't you just short-circuit his life? Yeah, exactly. And go straight to the water bottle. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so simple. <laughs> it's incredible. I know, but I wouldn't have heard it like that, no. you know, 10 years ago either because I was developing – and I, I'm a pharmacist and I'm medically trained and I still believe that everything has a place because mm. people will need medications right now and they need um, assistance by well-trained people that understand how to help people in crisis and that's so essential. Mm. So, but, and, but that was my whole mindset. Mm. So now I've, for my own, my own life and I, I have a different mindset because I'm trying to avoid that and I'm trying to help my kids avoid that and 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 I'm trying to help other parents and children and society avoid or at least flatten the curve mm. by understanding that we have other strategies yeah. that we can implement and it's now helping people. How do we get that message? What can we do like these podcasts and 
other platforms? How do we reach people? How do we help people resonate with the messages? Yep. And sometimes it might be about the body first mm. that then brings the brain health mm. forward and things like that. So the main message from this podcast is it's brain science, brain's incredibly plastic and can be changed across the lifespan. Mm. After 25, like at 47 for me, it was harder because mm. you have to actually consciously turn it on. Yep. Um, but I know 89-year-olds and a 105-year-old that just did a triathlon. Wow. And when you look at um, – talking about ageing, when you look at people that live the longest, you'll look at blue zones, right? You'll hear about all of these things about food and exercise and, mm. and connectedness and all of this. But no one actually talked in any of those studies yet about people introducing novelty mm. and doing hard things. Yes. So what happens is people age, they actually take away things because yeah. they say, oh, I'm 60 now, I shouldn't Can't be running. Do that. But the people that are really um, ageing and thriving are the people that go and learn how to do fencing in their 80s. Yes, learn new things as they get older. Because the brain's a machine and if you don't give it new things or take a new route to work mm. or change it up a bit, it starts to atrophy. And that's just a well-known fact. And so I think that's going to people's – it's not about sitting there doing Sudoku only either <laughs> too, which helps. Yes, I was going to say that's what the recommendation is usually. For yeah, well, people. it helps, but it's only a small part because, you know, the brain likes to be in nature or mm. um, swimming in the ocean or, you know, meeting a new person. Like we tend to stick to the same people too, mm. whereas – we get more challenged if we meet new people. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's lots of different things that we can do to stimulate the brain and make it go in a good direction. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm very hopeful and excited about the future. Mm. But obviously I'm an optimist and I'm a dreamer. Yeah. But that's, so then the reality bites a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, Selena, I could talk to you for hours and hours on end, but that was such an inspiring and empowering conversation thank you so much You're for sharing welcome. that with us today thank you for having me it was wonderful hello listeners and welcome to episode five of season three did you know that 75 percent of australians are predicted to be overweight or obese by 2025 neuroimaging studies have shown that high sugar containing foods and beverages activate reward areas within the brain that reward appears to be more robust than those of cocaine Brain function is significantly impacted from sugar and food overconsumption. This week's podcast guest, Professor Selena Bartlett, believes the solution to solving our addiction troubles lies in our head, and more specifically, how we train our brains. Professor Selena Bartlett is a group leader in neuroscience and obesity at the Translational Research Institute. She was awarded the Laurie Austin Award for her contribu contributions to neuroscience by the Australian Neuroscience Society in 2019 recipient of the Biotech Research Award and was an ambassador for the Women in Technology organization. The overarching objectives of her research program is to apply a neuroscientific translational research and development approach to improve sugar addiction. Listen in as Selena delves into how sugar activates our addiction centers and changes the physical structure of the brain. Selena also discusses how she is using a neuroscience approach to combat addiction, that focuses on retaining the brain, retraining, sorry, the brain.
Whoever I can get. Explain it also to Stephanie. 